This morning, I am going to speak about love and marriage. Wasn't there a song about that? Yeah, love and marriage. That's exciting, isn't it? How many of y'all excited? How many getting married like this year coming up? Anybody getting married? You got, I know, right here, right here, you got two. Somebody else, you got, got Tyler, Ty Finley here. All right, you guys. So, so this is going to be like a little bit of marriage counseling, a little premarital counseling. Can I tell you this, though? If you're just dating, you need to take notes, too, just to get ready. If you've been married 30 years, this will kind of help correct a few things, maybe. And, and trust me, you, like I said before, you're getting advice from the best husband. That, I mean, you just ask Andrea. Ask Andrea. She'll tell you. I mean, uh, I've been in this thing for a while now. So here's the thing. I'm just going to go to the Word. We're going to let the Word deal with it. All right, amen? But if you want to, you can turn to the first page in your Bible, in Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to talk about marriage. You may want to turn this mic down just a touch. And, um, and so marriage, here's the thing. If you look at it from the beginning, God was the one who designed this union between a man and his wife. You realize that. Like, we didn't come up with that. This is not just a social construct that we created, but it was God's design from the very beginning. And I don't know if you've realized it or not, but, but even in your own marriage or relationship or if you're young and married or, or young and single and thinking about getting married, I'm telling you right now, our culture, which is ultimately designed and constructed sort of by the powers of darkness to a large degree, are currently out to attack your marriage and your relationship and your family. And there's an onslaught against marriage and family and godly family. And so we have to be aware of certain things that are coming in our direction so that we can defend against it, we can protect it. And so from the beginning, God puts this in place and, and, he, and, he, and he structures marriage in such a way that all of human flourishing would flow from a man and his wife in the covenant of godly marriage, having children. And from that place, the whole fabric of society would be tied together in love and it would cause us as a, as a human race to reflect God's glory and reflect God's love. But See, Satan entered in and he is trying to always pervert and distort and break down marriage because he hates God's design. And so we know that at the root of this, we're going to talk a little bit about sexuality in this. So you guys get ready. I don't have a whole lot of time, but uh, just pray for me as we go. This should be okay. But in Genesis chapter 2, let's begin at verse 15 and read through this. And I'm going to kind of skip around a few verses, but in verse 15 it says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Verse 22, then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, and actually if you look at it in the Hebrew language, this is actually a love song. It's, it's, it's a poetry. So he's singing this out. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat from the tree of, of, the, 
every tree of the garden. Let's pray together really quickly. Father, we thank you for your word. And God, we thank you for your spirit that is present here with us this morning. God, I believe you've already began to move in hearts, to move in minds, to bring freedom. And Lord, regardless of where we're at in our situation in life, God, some of us are single with no intentions of getting married anytime soon. Some of us are right in the middle of it. Some of us have been married 30 years, Lord God, and, and some of us may be even widowed. But God, in this message, Lord Jesus, I believe that you're able to speak to us uh, as far as all of our relationships go. And so I just pray that your spirit would anoint this, God, that you would bring correction where correction is needed. And ultimately, we would know your will and be transformed by your word into the image of Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. So in the beginning, just a little bit of review, God places man in a place called Eden, and it is a garden. Literally, Eden means pleasure. It means delight. It means luxury. And when he puts man in this garden of Eden, he gives him dominion and authority, and he says, listen, you're going to have to take care of this garden. This is the place from which I want true pleasure to flow out into all the world, and you're going to worship me and be in communion with me, and you're going to reflect my glory. And as long as you take good care of this garden, you're going to be able to produce good fruit so that this world will flourish, but you're going to have to guard it, and you're going to have to cultivate it. You're going to have to make sure that no weeds come up in this and choke out the fruit. You're going to make sure, you have to make sure that no serpents or no foxes come in and eat the fruit that is growing. And see, Adam means human. Eve means life. He puts them both in the garden and they are representatives of the entirety of human life. He puts them in this garden. He says, you guys are going to have to watch this garden. You're going to have to pay attention to what's coming in, to the things that are growing in it, and you're going to have to protect it and keep it because this is the design out of this marriage is going to flow all of the nature and characteristics of God. So what God actually said, he said, look, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. You're going to have a relationship with me and that love with, from the relationship with me is going to flow out to your spouse. You're going to have children. They're going to become followers of me as well and this is going to spread throughout the world. So it is within God's design that in the covenant of marriage right out of the gate. Like he could have started with anything, but he starts with a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage having children. Amen. And he says, look, you're going to have to watch out because there's a serpent on the loose, so to speak. And he says, I'm going to make you one, a helper that is comparable to you. How many of you says, it says, hey, it's not good for a man to be alone. How many of you men, you know, you've recognized that at one point or another. Like, I, you probably need a little help. I like what it says, though. He says, I'm going to make a helper comparable to you. The word helper there in the Hebrew language is this Hebrew word ezer. And it's usually used for God being a helper. And so he said, I'm going to give you a woman and she's going to come alongside of you. And if you read it in the Hebrew language, he said, I'm giving you a helper or a power facing opposite, which literally means that I'm going to give you somebody to help you that basically will fill in the gaps that you two together can actually do more together in union than you could have done alone. It's not good for you to be alone because even God himself, who is one God, is three persons. Amen. He's, he, he, in, his, in essence, it's this relationship of community and love and oneness where they're always pouring love and worth out on another. And so he's saying, I want you to become a reflection of my design. You're in relationship with me. You're in relationship with one another. And you see that trinity at work even within that relationship between a man and his wife. And so he says, I'm going to make a, her a, a, a helper comparable to him. Now, I don't know about you, but all my best ideas come from my spouse. Amen. Like if Andrea put something up last night, I don't know if you saw on Instagram, some of you may have saw it. Like she took a picture of my nightstand, which has 32 water bottles on it. 
You know what I'm saying? Because I go to bed at night and I take a water bottle and I may drink in the middle of the night, I may not. But when I get up in the morning, I ain't got time to clean that stuff up, you know. But she outed me and sent it out. How many of y'all, you do the same thing? Anybody? Anybody? I need help. Hey, praise God. Praise God. Water bottles everywhere. I mean, you never know when you're going to need one. But, but all of my best ideas come from her. And if, if, if it were not from her, I would live in a house that was absolutely a disaster. And none of my clothes would ever be washed. And I'd always have terrible ideas. And this church would break down. Amen. <laughs> so we thank God for our spouses. I went through a season there where I thought, man, I think I can do this alone, Lord. And he's kind of giggled at me, I imagine. Uh, but, uh, you know, some have that gift. The Apostle Paul had that gift, and we, we can unpack that a little bit more. But here's the main problem when we talk about marriage, is you bring in two people together, and both of y'all are full of sin. you both selfish as all get out. You may or may not have a good, strong relationship with the Lord, and we're trying to bring y'all together and make you one. And what we don't realize is that in the overall scheme of things, God uses our flaws in order to refine one another to make us grow in the direction of love. Ultimate love takes sacrifice. Jesus demonstrated that just like Matt said, by laying down his life. This is why in Ephesians 5 it says, Hey, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and died for her. And so he's saying, if you want to grow in the direction of love, the only way you're going to truly learn how to love is, is going through difficulties, is, is learning how to sacrifice and die to yourself. And so God gives us marriage, and even in our brokenness and flaws, it becomes an opportunity and a breeding ground for true love where we're willing to lay down our lives and walk in that direction and let God shape us. But here's what it says in Malachi 2.15. It says, Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit... You are His. Now, that is not just a biblical or theological kind of cliche, like, oh, we got married, we become one. You know, I've heard several people say here recently that marriage is just a piece of paper. I'm going to tell you something, friends. It is not just a piece of paper. When you consummate a marriage, you link into another human person, spirit, soul, and body. Two people have a child together. They are emotionally connected in a way that you cannot separate them even if you try. They're connected for life. They become one. It's both, it's, it's both psychologically, scientifically provable. You can get into this. And you, you even notice, y'all ever notice how like when, when two people end up having kids, the, even the husband and the wife start looking the same? I mean, it's true. You look at the kids, you'd be like, I can't tell which one it looks like. You know, and it's because you guys are legitimately becoming one, spirit, soul, and body. And so it's a very strange thing how those things happen. But he says, what does, what does the Lord want from this union? He says, godly children from your union. So guard your heart, remain loyal to the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. Now, before we get started, I want, I want to say this because here's what I know. I know that people have come in here. There are people that have been divorced. There are people that maybe just went through a divorce. Uh, there are, most of us, um, most likely we've already failed sexually in our lives. And those things can carry with them an immense amount of shame. 
The last thing that the Lord would want you to do, see, we have to preach the biblical standard, don't we? We're the church of Jesus Christ. we got to preach the biblical standard. God's standard is that He hates divorce. But can I tell you that even when we've messed up and we've broken, we've failed sexually, maybe we've been divorced, God still loves you. God still has a plan for your life. He can bring redemption. He can bring healing. And He will set you free from shame if you will be open to Him. So many of us have messed up and made mistakes, but that's not the end. So I don't want anything that I say, even though it may be a little bit strong this morning, to bring you into a place of shame where you don't think you can move forward with God anymore. We've all made mistakes, folks. We've all messed up, but we can get better by the help of the Spirit of God and our marriages can become a reflection of God Himself and His love for us. So he says, what does God want? He wants godly children from your union. You know that God planned on saving the world. We've been talking a lot about this as a church. God planned on saving the world through a husband and his wife who had children and they carried love for one another that their, that their sons and daughters could see the love of God in them And so they could raise up themselves and have a relationship with God to where they would continually be a reflection of who God is and it would bring salvation to the world in a sense. He says that marriage is actually not, it's not really the the model. The model is Christ and the church. Marriage is just a reflection of Christ and the church. And so that's what we're looking to do. And so in our families, we're looking to cultivate families where the marriage is filled with love and we actually elevate the Word of God above Facebook, above television, above video games, above all of those other things so that we are raising godly children who know the Lord and know what God's love is like. And when we do that, we have the potential. Because here's the thing, we go out and do street preaching all day we can go, and some of us are evangelists, thank God, we can go down on the corner and start doing some street preaching. You might say, I've done that before. I've seen very little fruit out of it. I'm still for it. I may do it. We may do that some. I'm not against that, but some of the greatest evangelism is if you would just love your wife and your kids and teach your children and your family and pray together and center your life and your ministry and your marriage around the Word of God. I mean, you do all kinds of street preaching. Nothing preaches louder than when somebody comes into your home and they see the love of God there. And so, again, nearly all of us have failed on some level. I understand that. And you need to know, because we got a lot of singles in here, too, and maybe some of y'all are getting ready to think you're considering getting married. Y'all, you're getting real flirtatious. It's Valentine's Day. Like, you got you're going to buy chocolates and all that jazz. And and, and that's good. That's, uh, you know, whatever. Get into that stuff, right? Andrea told me, Andrea told see, you need wives, too, that'll tell you stuff. Like, Andrea told me, like, you know me and Naomi are both your Valentine's. You're going to have to get us both something this time. And me, being a man, I was like, I didn't know I had to buy anything. I didn't, re- anybody, amen? I wasn't sure. I didn't know if I had to buy anything or not, because, you know, we're real practical, and we think flowers are goofy, because you just put $100 on something that just dies next day. But it's, can I tell you this, and this is what I get from Andre a lot, it's the thought that counts, my friends. Amen, right? Men, it's the thought that counts. That's a good tip this morning. Write that down in your notes. So just know that whatever God begins in your life, Satan will oppose. If you brought your girlfriend here this morning, I promise you Satan's going to oppose what God is trying to do in your relationship. He's going to try to destroy that thing before it gets started. 
And he's going to try to make it ungodly out of the great gate so that you're carrying all kinds of baggage into the marriage once you decide to get married. Or now he's just going to try to get y'all to do things that you shouldn't be doing and then break it up and split it apart so that you don't start on a solid foundation. He wants to do that. So many times I do marriage counseling, and to be honest with you, marriage counseling is only as good as the people who want the counseling and are open to Jesus working in their lives. You can come and take my counseling, and it will not help you one iota if you ain't going to submit your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, that's good right there. I mean, I, we might as well just start right there first day. Hey, y'all going to submit your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ? No, we ain't going to do that. Well, let's not counsel then. Go have a good day. All right. Praise God. <laughs> Uh, because at the end of the day, if you ain't got Jesus at the center of it, I can't give you no tips to make your marriage work. You're going to continue to remain selfish and not born of the Spirit and not led by the Spirit, and you're going to make terrible decisions. And you're not going to sacrifice yourself for your spouse. So, again, problems in marriage begin when we're young. I like what Paul says. I remember when I was, you know, when, when, when I first got saved, I waited like seven years before, before I, I got married. And, and during that time, you know, I was, I, I was like anybody else. You know, you get lonely, don't you? Like, I, want, I want somebody. I know how y'all are. And, and, you, and you just praying on all your prayer requests. The Lord, send me that, send me that person and, and, and all that stuff. I, I know you get into that. But, you know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, like he said, he said, this isn't even from God. He said, this is just my judgment. I, and I'm like, I don't, can you do that when you're writing Scripture, Paul? Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's I'm Can you do that, Paul, when you're writing Scripture? Like you just say, this isn't necessarily a command from God, but this is my judgment. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, it's better for you if you remain unmarried. He said, it'd be, if you can, he said, it'd be better for you to remain unmarried because in the, in, the, in the current condition of the world with broken people, you're going to end up paying way more attention to try to please your spouse rather than how you can please the Lord. And so often in our marriage relationships, honestly, one or the other becomes a drag on the other one's relationship with the Lord. I see it all the time. And so he says, you know what? You need to make sure, one, that you're marrying somebody that you're not unequally yoked. Like the, that, Listen, folks, if that person that you're dating is not following Jesus and making bad decisions, dump their hind end. Come on. Amen. Because if you're going to follow Jesus and you're going to get yoked up with somebody like that, they are going to take you in another direction. I've done already seen it too many times. And so when, when, when I met Andrea, I had been waiting and waiting and waiting. And finally, I found somebody that I put to the test in a couple of situations. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, okay, this is a godly woman. <laughs> Praise the Lord. We there's, there was one out there. And I know it's hard to wait. I understand that. But he says, look, if, you, if, 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 if you're in this situation, he says, all right. If you, if you can't help, but you're just burning with passion and you just can't hold back, he said, you can go ahead and get married. That's all right. He said, now, when you get married, and, he, and here's what he teaches. He says, sex is only within the covenant of a man and a wife in marriage. You got to enter into that covenant right first. And once you enter into that covenant, that gift is for you in that place. Outside, it causes destruction. When I counsel people, I'm going to get a little bit intentional right here this morning. Amen. Y'all with me? When I counsel people all the time in marriage counseling, first, one of the first questions I ask them, hey, y'all had sex. Is that We ain't getting counseling from that dude. <laughs> Amen. And whether they'll tell me or not, you know, they may, they may not. I don't know. But, my, but my, what, what I always say is, look, that's, if, if you've done that, okay, fine. But if you want to do it God's way, you need to repent and you need to give that to the Lord, and you guys need to remain chaste, if I can use a King James word this morning, 
until you actually enter into the covenant and give your marriage to the Lord. And that's great counsel. And I've seen people do that. And you know when they did it, they said, man, we started fighting less. Like all of a sudden the Holy Spirit got involved in our marriage because we're no longer grieving him. And we're open to what he wants. And we've repented of the decisions that we've made up to this point. And I know that's a hard word for most people. Because in our culture and in our generation, everybody has thrown that out the window. And sex is just something, you know, we just do it. I mean, nobody really does that. You know what I'm talking about, Clay? That's, that's like old school stuff. Nobody really follows that anymore. Now, I'm telling you, the Word of God has been the same for a long, long time. And this is God's design. And it's a question of whether or not you really want sex and marriage and love to function at its highest godly level. Or if you want to bring it down on a level where it's not functioning well at all. Do you want to experience sex at its best? Do you want to experience love at its best? Well, then you should go the way of God. Because that's when it's going to bring about the most fruit. Song of Solomon, he says, listen, young folks. He says, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. One place he says, promise me, O women of Jerusalem, not to awaken love until the time is right. I know that the waiting is hard, but I'm telling you, you're going to make the best decision you've ever made when you wait on the one who ain't crazy. Yeah, I ain't even laughing about that one. It's that serious. It's that serious. And when you rush into something, you arouse and you awaken love before it so desires. God, by His Spirit, if you put God first, will bring you the right person at the right time and you will both know in your spirit and you won't have to test them out to see if it's going to be good or not. You know what I'm talking about, somebody. Somebody said to me, well, how am I going to know if they're any good at sex? Let me tell you something. you got all kinds of time to learn, friend. You say, well, that's inappropriate this morning, Pastor. Everybody else out here in the world talking about it, y'all going to have to hear it from, from some, somebody that's looking at it from a godly perspective as well. Amen. And so, so, so the point being is you need to wait because sex is a powerful thing. It's not just an activity that, you, that two consenting adults can have and then, and then you just do it and no big deal. No, you're going to carry every sexual encounter you have on into your future. You're going to carry baggage on into your future. You're going to carry it into your marriage. Your porn addiction, you're going to carry that into your marriage. I'm telling you, it's going to slowly erode the fabric of what true love is between a union. And you see that stuff cropping up in, in anger and frustration and fighting and arguing and quarreling and all of these different things. And ultimately, you're, I got a lot more message to preach, so I need to, I need to move on. But see, too often the reason we get in this situation is we're trained by the world's principles rather than Scripture. Amen. And you know, I was reading, I'm going to give you some quick stats, but porn stats, for example. Right now, 93% of boys and 62% of girls see porn before age 18. And age 12 to 17 is actually the largest consumer of pornography. And the pornography industry currently makes more money than all professional sports industries combined. The average age of first-time exposure to pornography is 11 years old. And we have such a highly sexualized culture that it actually lends to our divorce rates. Both in the world and in the church, the divorce rate is just above 50%. That means that even in the church, our standard is really no different 
than the world, we still get divorced at about one, one out of every two, right? About half of us, we end up experiencing a divorce. And so what we need to do is protect ourselves and guard ourselves against Satan coming in and getting into our relationship. And so here's the thing, parents, and we got a lot of kids growing up. I don't know what the age is that you start dealing with this stuff, but if kids are getting it, I know, I know for I was actually introduced and exposed to pornography the first time in my life in second grade. I remember it very vividly. I don't even know how old you are in second grade. But I remember a kid bringing, it, bringing a magazine to school back in there. You know, you didn't barely even had good internet. You know what I'm talking about? Now you can bring up anything you want to bring up at any given time of the day on your phone. And kids have access, wide open access. But you have to begin talking about these things and your kids are most likely going to fail. They're most likely going to make mistakes. They're going to struggle with it. But somebody has to begin planting seeds of the Word of God in their heart so that they can have, develop a relationship with God. Because if they're not filled with the Holy Spirit, they're not going to overcome the systems of this world. If you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, you're not going to be able to, to maintain purity until you are married. You need to be filled with the power of God. Amen. Otherwise, you're going to be consumed by the spirit of this world. But see, sex was designed by God for pleasure, for union, for relationship, for bonding, and the creation of a family that's centered around love and any other use of it is actually destructive. So in Genesis 3.1, you see it's so powerful, the family union, a man and his wife, and coming into this place where they have a God, it's so powerful that the first thing that Satan attacks is he goes straight to the family, the man and the woman, and he begins to attack the family, and he enters in. So here's the thing. I'm going to give us six quick things. In Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 15, it says, You must catch the troubling foxes, those sly little foxes that hinder our relationship. For they raid our budding vineyard of love to ruin what I've planted within you. Will you catch them and remove them for me? We will do it together. So there's these little foxes trying to get in your relationship. You know, and here's the thing. If I'm being honest, and you know, sometimes I get transparent, maybe, uh, but you know, whatever. Andrea gets scared sometimes whenever I get real transparent. But even this past week in our relationship, there, there's times where you have to say, look, we need to talk about this. Because there's little things that may be creeping in right here that could get us into a bind. And you got to be open in that way. So there, let me give you six quick things. But number one, and this is probably the most important one, is infidelity. And that's just unfaithfulness or cheating, straight up. And I read some crazy stats, and I actually gave these stats to Andrea, and she was like, that, these stats cannot be real. And I said, well, here's the article, you know. These people, but, but here's what I'll say. The, some of the stats that I'm about to read, Probably not as 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 probably not the same stats that we would have among a group like this. But our world is half crazy, y'all, and so people believe crazy things. But these stats says twenty five percent of men and fifteen percent of women have committed adultery or had sex with someone they're not married to. Sixty percent of men and thirty nine percent of women. And then listen to this one: sixty percent of men and thirty nine percent of women say that kissing is not cheating. That is a real stat. If see, look, if you're married in here and you're kissing another woman, you're cheating. <laughs> Let me catch one of y'all. You know what I'm talking about? Like, if this is what our world believes in right now, if that starts to infect us, folks, we're going to be in bad shape. I mean, when we talk about faithfulness, I mean, what, what, what does it mean? What does it mean to be faithful? I mean, if you're flirtatious, you're being unfaithful. You, should, you shouldn't cross those boundaries with other women. 
right? You, if you're being flirtatious, if you're fantasizing about someone else, you got somebody else in your mind, you've already committed adultery in your heart according to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying that it remains to be the standard if we're going to experience human flourishing and strong, godly relationships. So here's the thing. You know, you can tell sometimes too, like, like when, I don't know, I hope nobody's done this lately because promise me, I'm not, I've not been even on Facebook in a while. But you can almost tell a lot of times with some folks whenever they start taking them little pictures, you know what I'm talking about? Like it's a dead giveaway. She over here doing duck face, her husband in the other room. Wait, why are you posting that on, on social media? Why are you showing me your body on social media? You got a spouse. I mean, even if you didn't, let me tell you something. You, a godly man ain't going to be ba- attracted to that. <laughs> Somebody that's filled with the Holy Spirit is going to say, now that woman may be, you know, a little bit, a little bit promiscuous. Are y'all okay if I just go deep this morning? I don't mean to intrude. So we've got to guard these things. And here's the thing. You need to be open with somebody. You need to address your pains. You need to address your hurts, your habits, your sins. There are wounds that need to be healed. I thank God that God gave me some space after I got saved to repent of my sin deeply, for me to get set free from sexual bondage, from porn addiction, and then gave me some space to maintain purity so that when Andrea was introduced into my life, I wasn't still half crazy and I was better at treating a woman and she was not just a sexual object to me. You, some of you men, you need, that spa- you need that space to figure out if you can just let the Holy Spirit be your love relationship for a season instead of constantly chasing after a woman just for sex. Some of you all, that's, that's I mean, and here's the thing, it's, nowadays it's men and women, that's all they want. Even if you were to have sex every single day of your life, what are you going to do with the other 23 hours in the day? You know what I'm talking about? You're going to have to figure out how to de- develop a friendship and a relationship with this person. Too much again? It's real. So how do we fight it? We don't rush into relationships. You don't put yourself in the wrong situation. You flee sexual immorality. I guess at one point in my life, I was living such a holy life that I remember one time a a, a young woman said to me, Clay, I'd trust you in a room full of naked women. I can't believe she made that statement. I said, well, you're crazy. I wouldn't trust me in a room full of naked women. The Bible says flee sexual immorality. Do not put yourself in a situation where you might succumb to temptation. Turn your phone off. If you can't be alone with your computer in the same room, unplug that thing and put it somewhere else. You have to do things to guard your heart, to guard your eyes, to protect yourself because you cannot put any confidence in your flesh because He'll take you into a bad place. But see, the best defense is a good offense. Let me read you some Proverbs here. Proverbs 5, verse 15 through 20, it says, My son, share your love with your wife alone. Drink from her well of pleasure and from no other. Why would you have sex with a stranger or with anyone other than her? Reserve this pleasure for you and her alone and not with another. Let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Let her breast be your satisfaction. I'm telling you, the Bible will get into it some. (laughs) And let her embrace, intoxicate you at all times. Be continually delighted and ravished with her love. My son, why would you be exhilarated by an adulteress? 
by embracing a woman who is not yours. And you know, the Jewish people actually viewed the Proverbs as, as behind greed or behind drunkenness or behind adultery. They viewed it as a seducing spirit. And even in our world today, when you get on social media, I'm telling you, there's a seducing spirit on the other side of that screen. There's a seducing spirit in some of them women and some of them men out there trying to bait you, trying to, as the young folks say, slide in your DMs. Y'all know anything about that? I told somebody, I told her, I said, anybody slide in my DMs, my wife going to know about it. You slide up in my DMs, she's going to see it. Amen. I'm not going to leave any of that stuff uncovered. Proverbs 7, verse 24 through 27, because literally in the book of Proverbs, two whole chapters, Proverbs 5 and Proverbs 7, totally dedicated to the adulteress. And it says, Now therefore listen to me, my children. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for she has cast down many wounded, and all who were slain by her were strong men. Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. So let me tell you this, and I've said this before, but your spouse is your standard of beauty. Your spouse is your standard of beauty. No matter who you married, that's yours right there. And you don't get to compare her or him to other men or other women because they have become your standard of beauty. That's the most beautiful person that you're going to look at. Amen. Someone look at them right side and say, you, you want me, you're my standard, baby. <laughs> Happy Valentine's Day. Number two, let me work through this a little bit more quickly so we'll get out of here at a decent hour is entropy, and this is gradual decline. Gradual decline, because a relationship can begin like a blazing fire, but all of a sudden when you get married and time passes and you have kids, the same fire that you had in the beginning is not the same fire that you have now. And you know, the Bible says that a man is to leave his father and mother, and he is to cleave unto his wife. That word cleave actually means to pursue, to catch by pursuit. In other words, and this is something that I'm learning as a man over and over again, my wife wants to be pursued. And I, so I've got to figure out things that she likes. Like she likes it if I go to Lowe's without asking and buy her stuff that she's wanting to work on without having to ask. That pours fuel on the fire. You know what I'm saying? If I go home and wash the dishes, that's going to pour fuel on the fire, son. So I don't want to let our, my relationship weaken. I've got to study her. I've got to pay attention to what gets her, makes her happy, gets her excited. I can't let the dadral, gradual decline keep going in that direction. Number three is blame. Now, this is a big one right here because everybody needs a scapegoat. Man, I tell Andrea all the time, she is my scapegoat. Anything goes wrong, what'd you do? What'd you do, Andrea? You know what I'm saying? And a lot of times it's just a joke because I need somebody to blame. How many of y'all are you with me on that? Like I, I need, when things go wrong, I need somebody to blame. But the problem with blame is what it really does is it calls attention to the deficiencies in our spouse while conveniently failing to recall the toxic contributions we keep bringing to the table. So I can sit down and blame Andrea for some stuff she's been doing, but usually when I do that, I'm covering up my own toxic attitude that I've been bringing to the table. And so I need to evaluate what's going on in my heart before I just cast blame. And when you're blaming, usually you'll slip into language like, well, you always do this. Hey, she probably don't always do it. Well, you never do that. Well, you're just exaggerating because you've slipped into a spirit of blame. Number four is comparison. And comparison leaves us with the illusion of something or someone better. 
that is your spouse, you are in a covenant. You do not have the right to compare her or him to another man or to another woman or to another situation. That's the one you've got. Y'all got to grow together from where you're at right now. When you compare to somebody else, you have the illusion that something, it's the, the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. They ain't showing me the care and the affection that I need that I want. I'm going to tell you something. Some other dude may do it for a few minutes, but as soon as y'all get locked in together, he's going to be just like the other dude you with before. Nine times out of ten. Nine times out of ten. So you've got to work on the relationship you have right now in order to make it better. Comparison is the opposite of gratitude. And a lot of times what you need to do is quit complaining and be thankful for what the Lord has given you. Amen. Number five, see, when we compare, what we do is it produces a steady decay in our relationship until we feel justified in withdrawal. So if I'm unsatisfied for a while, what I'll do is I'll justify my unsatisfaction by finally just withdrawing from my spouse. And let me tell you this, even in situations, let's not even think about like relationships between our, in our, our husband and wife. In our relationships with church people, when we get aggravated, rather than confronting and having a conversation in order to heal the issue, you know what we do? We withdraw. <laughs> Forget them people, man. If they better Christians, they wouldn't act like that. No, you need healthy confrontation and conversation. We're sinners and we're not going to make it in this life without having some face time with folks, with our spouse or with our friends or with our family, with our church family. You don't just get to opt out just because somebody acts bad, y'all. You got to have healthy confrontation and conversation. If I, if, if I were to do something to you, I would hope that you would respect me enough to not just ditch me, but you'd come and at least share with me what's on your heart, what I've done to hurt you. And then you give me an opportunity to say, I'm sorry, I apologize. I'll do my best to do better. Yeah. Amen. Amen. So don't just withdraw into somebody else or texting with somebody else or withdraw into porn maybe, withdraw into attention from somebody else. Or you withdraw into resentment and you're no longer able to actually have a conversation that will lead into forgiveness and reconciliation. If you're going to have a healthy marriage, you've got to have a lot of forgiveness and a lot of pardon. Like me and Andre, we're forgiving each other all the time. My bad, I, I get better, you know what I'm talking about? And, you ha- and that's just part of it. Like there's going to be a lot of forgiveness, there's going to be a lot of pardon. And you don't want to just harden yourself against that and enter into withdrawal and resentment. And number six is excessive individuality. The Bible says that the two become one flesh. I was about to marry a couple, and there was a guy uh, out there, and he had had some rocky relationships himself, and he said, well, let me tell you something. I'll give you some advice. No matter what you do, don't share the same bank account. And I thought, uh, you probably not the best like to be giving advice right now. Um, but I won't say anything. But, but here's the thing. Two or one, it ain't mine and hers. It's ours. Y'all got the same scorecard. You have the same everything. And, and when you help the other, you're actually helping yourself because you are both one. Amen. Amen. So it's not just enough, though, that, that I'm guarding against these things. I've got to be working on some things as well. So these are things that could creep in, but I've also got to be pouring into something. You know, when Jesus uh, comes on the scene, you remember what his first miracle was? Jesus' first miracle was he turned water into wine at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. 
Jesus got invited. His mama got invited. And all of his disciples got invited. They're having a nice wedding. And for whatever reason, maybe they didn't have enough money, couldn't afford all the wine, but they break out. They're having a good time at this wedding. And all of a sudden, they run out of wine. And Jesus' mom feels bad for the wedding party. So she says, hey, Jesus, come here a minute. And she walks him in there. And Jesus walks in. And he said, woman, what I got to do with you? He said, my time isn't yet. And she don't even say nothing to Jesus. She says, hey, whatever he tells you to do, do it. And I love it. In the King James Version, it says that there were several water pots there, about two or three firkins. You know, how many of y'all you drunk about a firkin of coffee this morning? <laughs> I had about one firkin. Appar apparently, is a, firkin, a firkin is about 10 gallons. Because in other translations, it says it was 20 to 30 gallon pots. 20 to 30 gallon pots, y'all. And so they filled them up. And I love what it says. It says they fill these pots up to the brim. And here's what I want to say is, is that God will do his part if you will do your part. If you will start filling up the pots to the brim, then God can take the water that you pour in and turn it miraculously into wine. He can turn that which is bland into something that is full of life and full of joy and full of merriment. That's what wine represents throughout the entirety of Scripture. Amen. And so, so he's saying he can turn this if you will pour it in. So there's some things that I need to pour into. And number one is, is I got to pour into making time. I got to make time. And this is important because we got busy schedules, don't we? Everybody's doing this, doing that, running here, running there. But you have to at some point make some time to listen to your spouse. Sometimes Andrea just wants to, to talk and me to listen and me to be engaged. And it's really important because a lot of the fights we get, get in over, like people do, all of us, is over the fact that we're sitting there staring at our phones rather than listening to them. Amen. And so sometimes we'll even have, like sometimes we'll be driving down the road and I'll have to say, hey, Andrea, look, put down your phone a minute, let's talk. And then she'll have to say to me when we're at the house, hey, put down your phone a minute, let's talk. And what you got to do is not get angry, put the phone down and engage in a conversation. Amen. Gosh, this is just so practical, Clay. You've been doing this for years. Make time. Number two, assume the best. And this is a pretty big one. Because 1 Corinthians 13, 5, when it talks about what love is, it says that love does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. And it keeps no record of wrongs. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes. Always perseveres. Look at that first, first verse there, number, number five. It says that it's not easily angered or overly sensitive. Literally, the word there can mean having sharp edges. And sometimes I get this way. How many of y'all, you get moody sometimes? You know what I'm talking about? Andrea gave me a tip the other day, and maybe you women will give this same tip. I don't know if this is good advice to share. I don't know if it's crossing the line. <laughs> But Andrea told me that hormones are real, okay? Can you women agree with that? And, and I have to discern that sometimes women will act irrationally. Anybody? No laughs on that one. And, so, and some, sometimes, sometimes we act irrationally, but what we must do in those situations is give people grace and not become easily angered and provoked, but give grace in situations where the other one may be a little bit off kilter. Amen. And I know about, you know, people talking about women being married or being pregnant and whatnot. Sometimes when they're pregnant, right, they're, they're mean enough to, I mean, kill a snake with their bare teeth. Like... <laughs> And so, and so you have to assume the best, 
Not get easily angered. And secondly, it says keep no record of wrongs. Keep no record of wrongs. How many of you, you just keep that list of like things they've done? <laughs> and, 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 and so whenever y'all get in a fight, you bring out the, uh, hold on. <laughs> you remember about two months ago, you said that, you did that. You've been always doing this stuff. You know, and we get it. And this says that love literally keeps no record of the wrongs that have been done. It lets it go so that you're starting fresh and giving your spouse a clean slate. That's a difficult thing to do, isn't it? In the church, too, it breeds, it breeds bitterness. It causes church splits and division because one person in the church does you wrong one time, says something to you one time, you hold it. You hold it for your life. And then even you'll leave a church. And you'll go down the road and somebody say, well, what about that church down there? Uh-uh. And you'll lump a whole church based on one person saying one wrong thing to you one time because you hold on to that record of wrong. And God says, you've got no love in your heart right there, friend. And he says, you need to learn how to let things go, forgive people, and truly love, and assume the best. Assume that that person didn't mean to hurt you. Assume that they can change. Don't just think, well, they're fixed. They'll never change. They've always been this way. Love assumes the best. Number three, know your role. And really knowing your role biblically is is about mutual submission. The Bible says that wives are to be submitted to their husbands, but husbands are to love their wives like Christ loved the church. I would imagine it would be easy to submit to somebody that loves me so much that he's willing to die for me, like literally day by day. And he says, know your role in that situation, but mutual submission. If we're mutually submitted, we're both willing to yield to one another and not be stubborn and full of pride. When one of us comes to the other and says, hey, we need to talk about this, guess what? I'm submitted to them, so I say, all right, let me hear what you've got to say. Let's have a conversation. Mutual submission. Know your role in your marriage. And you know, in in the Scripture, I love what it says because in Ephesians 5, if you look at it in context... So it says, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be always being filled with the Holy Spirit. And then it talks about singing to yourselves with psalms and hymns and all this. So it talks about being filled with the Spirit, and then immediately it transitions into husbands love your wives, and it talks about marriage. In other words, it is the Holy Spirit that is the oil that's going to cause the machinery of your marriage to work. And that may be the most important thing. At the end of the day... All this stuff can come to you if you're seeking the Lord, you're praying together, you're praying alone, you're worshiping in your home, and you are attuned to the Holy Spirit. Because I've told you before, you know, I remember when me and Andrea first got married, and and, and over and over again, we would have arguments or whatever, she'd go to bed, and I'd be sitting there, and the Holy Spirit would say, Son, you don't let the sun go down on your anger like that. Y'all can't go to bed mad. And as far as I know, we've never went to bed without at least saying, I'm sorry, forgive me, and went on. Now, I know some of y'all, you ain't going to do that. I've had conversations. But you need to work on it. Somebody amen me. Amen. You need to plug that in. Now, Andre and I, we don't have a perfect marriage by any stretch of the imagination. See, that everybody, you know what? You, if you're married, you're going to have some struggles, period. I know some of y'all been in the game longer than I have. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. But it's not about not having struggles. It's not about being perfect. It's about learning how to fight well. And it's about learning to come to a resolution in love and forgiveness and wholeness. 
Number four, go the extra mile. And this is one that, you know, all of us struggle with. But Matthew 5, 41, it says, whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. So we have to sacrifice our own comfort in order to prefer, prefer our spouse and do more than they're actually asking us to do. Now, sometimes when I'm failing as a husband, I'll, I'll, I'll ask Andrea and I'll say, you know, you, you just need to tell me what to do. And she's like, yeah, but I, and you know how women are. They want you to do it without asking. Amen. Right. That's what you that's like the what a woman wants above everything. I want you to do that without me having to ask it. Sometimes men are dumb and you're going to have to ask them anyway. So train them. <laughs> my point being, my point being is that give your man a little bit of grace and train him. Train him like a dog and tell him what to do. And after a while, if you tell him what to do, he'll be like, oh, well, now that I know what to do, maybe I can go a little bit further. Maybe I can go the extra mile. And so we learn to outserve one another and go the extra mile and do the extra once we've learned each other. And sometimes it takes a little bit of time to learn, learn one another, doesn't it? You know, it's funny because nine times out of ten, when you get two people that come together in a relationship, a lot of times they're opposites. You ever notice that? Like they're really different. Andre and I were so, in the beginning, we had to like take personality tests. She had to, it took her a minute to understand that I was so introverted that me not wanting to be around her and everybody else at a constant rate was like not, not, it was not because I didn't like them. It's just because I, I can't be around people that much. <laughs> Amen. But to her, she's so extroverted, loves people, loves to be around people, has that bubbly spirit. To her, to not be around people is to say like that you don't like them. But it's really just a difference in personality. So once we understood that, we could come to agreement where she understood, hey, sometimes I need to give him some space. And I had to understand that sometimes even if I didn't want to be around people, I needed to sacrifice in order to go and be with these people. And not only that, be happy about being with them. Amen. Amen. And so number five, identify victories. Catch them doing something right and show your appreciation. Are you congratulatory or are you constantly corrective? I'll just let that sit for a minute. This is a really good verse. Proverbs 21, 19. It's better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and nagging wife. <laughs> Son, I'll read anything in here. I don't even care. You know what's funny about that verse? Let me tell you what's funny about that verse. Solomon wrote pretty much the entire book of Proverbs, okay? And he says that four times. He'd be in like chapter 6 and say it, and he'd be like, you know what, I'm down in chapter 11 now, I better remind him. <laughs> the guy had like a thousand wives or something though. So you can imagine, he was struggling. But he said this four times in slightly different ways. But the point is, is that we need to learn to also point out the good in our spouses, to encourage them, to congratulate them, to identify victories. And, and lastly, number six, naked and unashamed. Now, this is weird. Um, but that's what it says in Genesis 2, isn't it? It says, and they were naked and they were unashamed. 
Now, since we know the curse of sin has come, we put clothes on, bless God, and to not put clothes on would probably throw you in the jail. Um, so we keep clothes on now. But what it's saying here is this. It's that we are vulnerable, we're open, and you get to see all the depths of who I truly am. Because really when it comes down to it, what love is all about is I don't have to hide anything from this person. Like, I don't have to hide anything from God. He can see every part of me, the greatest darknesses, the worst things. And in that, I know He still loves me. And in a good relationship, we're open and vulnerable enough. We're naked spiritually, so to speak, where we're open and vulnerable enough to say, this is the real me, and we love each other in our greatest weaknesses. And we're not ashamed to be who we are because in the midst of it, God is changing us. He's healing us, and He's bringing us into this place. And see, so they, be, they began in a garden clothed with righteousness. They had no shame of who they were, no insecurity, no remorse. But when sin came into the world, all of a sudden they hid themselves in shame. And for any marriage to work, I'm telling you, this, salvation is at the root of this thing. In order for God to restore relationships, marriages, we have to understand that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin that we can be reconciled in relationship to God and we can be reconciled in relationship to one another. And we can come as we are and know that His blood deals with my shame. His blood deals with my past, where I failed, whether it be sexually or in marriage or whatever else. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness, gives us forgiveness and brings us back into reconciliation with the Father and with one another. And that's what we want. We want reconciled relationships that are rooted and grounded and built on love. And we want that for our marriages. Amen. Now, here's the thing, though. If you're here this morning, you've, you've listened to an entire message on marriage. You need to make sure that first and foremost, your relationship with Jesus, with God the Father, has been reconciled through the blood of Christ. A marriage is never going to work without Jesus at the center of it. So bow your heads just for a moment. I want us to pray. But if you're here this morning... And I know this entire thing was about marriage, but I need you to know above all things that Jesus loved you so much that He went to the cross and He died for you, laid down His life the same way husbands are to, for their wives. But He laid down His life, His blood was shed so that we could be forgiven of sin and we could be reconciled into relationship with God. Regardless of our past, regardless of what we've done, regardless of what we've been through, He says, I wash all of that away. I set you free from the powers of darkness. I break the chains of sin and addiction and pain and I heal you. And now you can enter into a relationship with me. So if you're here this morning, you say, I, I want that. And as an act of faith, I'm going to raise my hand and say, that's me. I'd love to pray. And I'd love to put faith in Christ, repent of my sins so that I could be born again by the Spirit of God. I see one hand raise up. Anybody else? I got another one. Anybody else? Anybody else? I see another hand. So if that's you right now, I, I want. Let, can we as a church, we got three people that have raised their hands that they want to see God move in their hearts this morning. And so I want you to pray with them right now. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. And Lord, right now I confess my sin to you. I repent of that sin. And I'm running to you, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that you are washing me now in your blood, forgiving me of all sin, taking away my shame, healing my pain, 
giving me a new heart, giving me a new spirit by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I believe that you were raised again from the dead on the third day after you died for me on the cross. I believe that with my whole heart and I confess you right now, Jesus, as Lord of my life. If you lifted your hand, I want you to do that right now. I confess you, Lord Jesus, as Lord of my life. I surrender full control. I commit my life to you. Lord, I renounce my old way of living. I renounce my sin. I renounce Satan. I turn from darkness. And I come to you right now, Lord Jesus, and I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we pray over each relationship, over each marriage, over each young couple, Lord God, that are considering marriage, that you would pour your Spirit out on them. Lord, you'd give each person grace to turn right now to you so that healing and reconciliation would come in Jesus' name. God, we give you the glory, all the honor. In your name we pray, amen. I want you to stand to your feet. We're going to worship together.